The final Daniel Craig James Bond movie, No Time to Die, builds legacies on top of legends. Are you just watching episode 121, No Time to Die? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for entertained Christians. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we decided to, you know, leave superheroes and <laughs> Asian philosophy and all these other things and dip into a franchise that's been around for a while. I'm not a massive James Bond fan, but at the same time, I'm not opposed to the franchise. It's one of those movie franchises that I like to dip my toes in occasionally, but I'm not mm -hmm. a fanatic. <laughs> so I, I think James Bond is a cool character. And there's been some actors portraying James Bond that I've liked more than others. And so the ones that I really was enthused about, I saw all their movies. And then the ones that I haven't been as enthused about, I tend to drag my heels. Mm -hmm. I believe this is the only Daniel Craig movie that I've seen in the theater. So that okay. might speak to how much I'm interested in him as James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't see any of the Timothy Dalton ones in the theater? Come on. <laughs> yeah. For the record, Dalton was my least favorite Bond. Yeah, my favorite was Brosnan. So I, I was already a huge Brosnan fan before he was uh, tagged to be James Bond. And I was all on board for every single one of his <laughs> movies. <laughs> But we're not here to talk about any of the Brosnan titles. We're here to talk about the final Daniel Craig movie. And he had five total, and I missed the fourth one. So I kind of felt a little bit handicapped going into this one. I didn't. Yeah, it was actually, I've seen it, but I had forgotten most of it. And when we were working on prep for this show, I went back and reread the plot. And it might as well have been part one of two, you know, say, to be continued at the end. Right. And see, I haven't seen Spectre at all. I didn't even know Spectre existed. And I went to see this movie, and I felt like I was coming in the middle of, like, you know, the 10th chapter of a book, and I had no clue what had happened in chapters <laughs> one through nine. So, yeah, I, I was a little lost at the beginning of No Time to Die. I will have to, I guess, look up Spectre and watch it at some point so that I have some context for what was going on at the beginning of No Time to Die. But before we get too far into our discussion, I do want to talk about the music. Now, James Bond has a definite feel to the music. Regardless of who composes it, it has to sound like a James Bond theme. Mm -hmm. And so they always start the movies with these really cool you know, very artistic splashes of color and movement. And there's always a title song. And so this movie, I think it was pretty typical of the, the James Bond franchise. And there was nothing spectacular about it. And at the same time, nothing that, you know, really detracted from it either. But the entire score for this movie was by Hans Zimmer. And I do like him as a composer. There's very few of his compositions that I can think of that I didn't like. So mm. that that's a, a good good thing to fall back on. And Billie Eilish sang the, the title song. And it basically, as far as I can tell, fit the genre. <laughs> Of a James yeah, Bond. it was a very Bondish song. <laughs> yeah, which sounds wrong when I say it that way. <laughs> 
Well, you know, the weird thing about it is that I know in the music industry, it, it is like a feather in your cap to be chosen to sing a yeah. Bond title song. So I know that there are a lot of pop culture musicians that would just line up and wave their hands and jump up and down, you know, to be chosen <laughs> to be able to sing. You haven't really made it unless you've done a Bond song. So let's play a little bit of the Hans Zimmer score just so you get into the feel of the movie before we talk about it. thing about you know the whole James Bond opening title scenes is that they always have the barrel shot you know where you're looking down the yeah. inside of a barrel gun and James Bond turns and fires at you and they always use that in every single title cut and the spoiler alert <laughs> there is <Yeah>. a <laughs> kind of a homage to that at the end of this movie now it isn't really a spoiler to talk about it because i you know i don't really have to give anything away to to say that they created a real life version of that looking down the barrel as he turns around and shoots at you they recreated that in a tunnel and it looked really cool and if you didn't notice yeah. it it was like it actually got a chuckle out of me in the theater because i i wasn't expecting it but it was so organic, the way that they flowed into it. I really appreciated it. Yeah, and I think that that was one of the things that was so great about this movie is that they did play a lot of homages to the entire franchise. They took the time to build it in, whether it wasn't quite so obvious, you know, that that's what they were doing, you know, like the whole shaken, not stirred line and other little little things like that that they made sure that they plugged into the movie to kind of fill out the franchise. You know, going into this movie, I kind of felt like it was the death of the franchise, like they were putting like a final period at the end of the sentence. I mean, we've done quite a few movies yeah. now, but they did end the movie by saying that James Bond would return. So I guess that isn't the end of the franchise, but it's still cool that they spent the time. It is a very long movie, I will say that. But it didn't feel as long as a lot of nearly three-hour movies. <laughs> I have been in some two-hour movies that felt longer. <laughs> Other than missing the context from not having seen Spectre, so the whole beginning scenes of the movie really kind of left me hanging because I had no clue what was going on there. It did eventually get into enough storyline that I was connected enough to the movie to care what was going on. But it did take a while. I would say at least the first 30 minutes of the movie, I was lost. <laughs> I really was. Yeah, yeah. I, I especially never having seen Spectre, I can see how you would have been <laughs> a bit, you know, confused. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the love interest. Typically, the Bond movies don't start with him being with a woman. He usually picks up a woman somewhere along the way. Yeah. And so to, to pick up and leave a woman at the beginning is kind of odd for the Bond franchise. And then the, the other thing that was a little odd about this one is that usually there is a disconnected scene at the beginning of Bond movies. They usually open with something that's completely disconnected from the the movie. And in this movie, that did not happen. Everything was connected. 
But, you know, for me, it was a a good, you know, nearly three hours of high action suspense, horror and romance. And it and it worked. (laughs) Yeah. Daniel Craig is some of the time he's my favorite Bond. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the time he is my second favorite Bond because I really like Brosnan, too. But I was a fan of Remington Steele and, you know, was introduced to him at a young age that Mm -hmm. way. So I, too, thought. You know, when every time they needed a new Bond, I was like, Pierce Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan, pick <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> yeah. And Brosnan really personified that debonair quality of mm. that smooth talking debonair secret agent quality that I had come to expect in Bond. And when Daniel Craig was first cast, I was skeptical, <laughs> to say the least, because Daniel Craig is, um, let's say that he is not as good looking as uh, many of the previous Bond actors. And I thought that it was a crazy choice. But what I came to realize that Craig's Bond seems much more relatable to me as a viewer than the other Bonds. The other Bonds all seemed out of, you know, the ideal, almost superhero-ish secret agents that are fictional beyond reason. But Daniel Craig felt like an every man who went through training and achieved what he has done. And maybe I could too. (laughs) (laughs) So I felt like in after all was said and done, that Daniel Craig was more my bond than... Piers Brosnan, even though I I really admire Brosnan as an actor and as a the characters he does, I really came to appreciate Daniel Craig's Bond. And, you know, the whole mythology of the Bond universe in there, it's I love it when they introduce other agents, and I love that they introduced another double O agent in this movie which we'll talk a little bit about later. The idea that that MI6 could go on without Bond is one I actually <laughs> I actually like even though I'm not a big fan of, you know, spin-offs necessarily. I could see 007 being somebody other than James Bond. There were a couple of misfires in this movie for me. I really felt like a lot of the elements of this movie were like stones skipping across a placid lake where they would just briefly touch on something and then skip to something else. For example, there is a complicated relationship between the villain, Safin, played by Malik, and Madeline, the love interest at the start of the movie. They really put a lot into showing the history between these two at the very beginning of the movie. But then it's almost, they touch on it. They do more than touch on it, but it never really gels into anything in my mind that, that really informs the story. The big baddie organization of the previous movies is Spectre. uh, Thus the name of the last movie. Yeah. But in this one, 
I almost felt like they wrote it out so that they could get to Malik's character. That Spectre was sort of like an afterthought, which was okay. It's like they wanted to do a sequel to Spectre, but then they didn't really want Spectre to be the bad guy anymore. And so they just yeah. like killed them all off. You know, it's just like right off the bat. It's like, okay, well, let's just get rid of Spectre. They, yeah. I guess, built it up to be this massive, you know, organization that, you know, couldn't be beat. And then they beat it. <laughs> the the guy beat it handily. You know, the old thing about the the president and the vice president can never fly on the same plane or be on the same helicopter or yet yeah, they managed to get all the specter agents in the same room. Except the, the head of the organization. Well, yeah, he was in prison. Yeah. So anyway, like every Bond movie, there are some comic elements in it. It's not, it's not a comedy, but there are some comic elements in it. I feel like they phoned in some, some of these jokes. One that, that came to mind was uh, I had to show someone your watch. It really blew my mind. It's like they let an artificial intelligence write that one. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the, the one about the cat, you know, they come with fur, right? I wrote that one yeah. down. It was like, but it, it wasn't funny. And to be honest, I really think it was the way Daniel Craig delivered the line. Mm -hmm. That's one of my beefs with him as a James Bond is that he's very one dimensional. It's like he plays the super sober, super spy, but he has no other, there's no other range of emotion. I mean, even in love scenes, he's delivering them like super sober, super spy. Uh, I see a little more than that. But yeah. I do agree that he has more than his fair share of angst. <laughs> so it's written all over his face. One thing that bugged me was there's a child in this film named Matilda, and it's established early on that the mother communicates with Matilda in French. And there are several times where Bond has to speak directly to Matilda, and he only does it in English, even though... She never speaks a word of English in the entire movie. Yeah, she doesn't. She, we don't give any indication that she understands the English, except maybe tertiary information. But Bond, I mean, as a character throughout the entire franchise and the books, he speaks English, Danish, German, French. And there's a scene in the movie where the girl is being held hostage by the bad guy and Bond speaks to her. But he speaks to her in English again, and it just – it didn't make sense to me. It was like an oversight that I didn't understand. Hmm. And there was one other thing that bugged me, and it's sort of spoilerish. but there's this thing in, in the movie called Heracles, which is – we'll call it a, a biogenic weapon. And it's an engineered biogenic weapon. Everybody just seems to accept that – once you get it in your system, there is no way to remove it. They state it as fact, and then nobody fights it. And that baffled me. See, see that didn't bother me. Particularly given the stakes. Yeah, that didn't bother me as much, because it lives and breathes in your blood. There's lots of things that live and breathe in your blood, and the only way to kill it is to kill you kind of thing. I mean, in a way, that's kind of what cancer is, and we, you end up having to like almost kill yourself to get rid of cancer. So it's kind of yeah. It, but the the origin of this as a created thing and being they say they're nanobite technological yeah. in origin, yeah. And the fact that this was literally created in a lab by people who <laughs> intended it for 
non-nefarious purposes, that they would do so without building in a failsafe. That actually broke my disbelief right there. But it wasn't meant to be a... It was meant to be a targeted weapon that would only harm the person that was targeted at. So having it linger in someone else's blood system because it wasn't targeting them and wasn't a problem once they had killed the target. I think that it didn't bug me as much as it bugged you. It, did, mm. it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal because the thought behind it is you would target at the one person that was the target. And whether it ended up in everybody else's system or not was not a matter of issue because all of the nanobytes in everybody else's system, their entire existence was only to kill that one target. And that target would be dead, so it wouldn't matter whether those six still right. existed in your system or not, because their target was already dead, and their existence no longer boded a problem. They were no longer a problem. So, yeah, I, I guess it didn't bother me as much, because the people who designed it were not concerned about it, obviously, and this will be something we don't talk about later, because it's one of our main themes. But yeah, it, it didn't bug me as much as it... Mm. A matter of disbelief, because I can definitely see it being a short-sighted thing. It's like, well, why would we need to get rid of it? Because it, it's not hurting the host, and the target is already dead, so it, it really doesn't matter whether we clean it out of their system or not. Yeah, yeah. that That is true, that it was a much more personalized weapon right. before that Russian scientist <laughs> got his, uh, his grimy little mutts on it. But those criticisms are relatively minor. Yeah. And no time did I, I mean, just like pretty much every other Bond movie, it's one you can sit down and, and you can enjoy without overthinking it. Yeah. And if you do think about it too much, then you do tend to pick it apart like you can any movie. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that when we look at thing, movies critically like we do, we tend to see the faults really quickly because we mm -hmm. we are looking for faults. But if you're going into a movie just to enjoy it, and that's one of the reasons why we we used to, in this podcast, not do initial releases for our podcast, because we wanted to be able to just enjoy a movie without having to overthink it the first time we saw it. And so I think with this one especially – because we went into it knowing we were going to do the review, we probably both overthought it a little too much Yeah, yeah. from the beginning. So we were kind of maybe nitpicking things that the average viewer probably didn't even pay attention to. <laughs> so it goes, when you talk yeah. about something with a Christian worldview in mind and, and you want to talk about it critically, then, you know, some of these things do kind of pop out at you and, and bother you. As I've said before, I'm not a massive fan of the franchise. I wouldn't like be going to conventions dressed up as a Bond girl or something. But I have enjoyed the movies in the past. This is a genre that I don't mind watching occasionally, but it's not something mm -hmm. that I go out of my way to watch. And so I don't mind waiting till they come out in DVD or streaming to watch. And so, you know, I may eventually go and watch Spectre, but... It's not something that I'm just like eaten up in curiosity about. <laughs> and I don't even think I own a James Bond movie. So. But all of that said. That's what the library is for. Yeah, that's what the, yeah exactly. That's what the library is for. And who owns movies anymore? <laughs> you just subscribe to a, a streaming service or you buy them digitally, I guess. Yeah. Movies anywhere. That's what I use. But we don't want to spend too much time on this. We want to get into our yep. our theme discussion. So we will let you know if 
uh, if we haven't already spoiled the movie, we will spoil it going forward. So if you are wanting to watch the movie without it being spoiled, this would be a time to stop, go watch the movie and come back to the podcast. But, you know, I know a lot of you go ahead and keep listening because you really don't care about spoilers. I actually have some friends <laughs> of mine that are just so angsty about spoiling movies that, you know, they won't talk about them like at work and stuff because they're afraid somebody in the room may have not seen the movie yet and might have something spoiled. So. Huh. There's some people who really worry about that. But I would Im- imagine that most of our listeners know when they you know, listen in on our podcast episodes that we're going to spoil a movie. So I would assume they're forewarned before they get this part. <laughs> now, I felt like the major, the biggest theme in this movie was all about legacy build- building. And it's it's interesting because it comes at the end of a very long legacy of movies. I mean, this franchise has been going on for... Yeah. 27 Bond movies. So this is the 27th. Mm-hmm. 27 movies, six Bonds. Some of them have had more movies than others. But it's an interesting legacy. A lot of these were based on books by Ian Fleming and loosely based on the books. Because I think <laughs> as we have gone forward in time, James Bond has not really aged any. And his group of people that he's worked with have morphed and changed through the years to fit whatever is the current dialogue. And the bad guys have changed to kind of fit, you know, the current global political temperature. Yeah. And so, you know, the books were written during, I think, mostly the Cold War era. So some of them have, the movies have been very influenced by that philosophy. But yeah, they've morphed a lot. And we do end up with a lot of very interesting and very bad villains. There's always a very strong black and white in Bond movies, which is nice. There's You don't have to worry about the anti-hero and the... Every person is the hero of their own story. Yeah. (laughs) Bond villains usually are out to destroy the world, so you can feel safe in hating them. But all that said, it's very interesting in this movie that everybody in the movie is legacy building and even the bad guys. And that is, I mean, you've got Bond who has retired at the beginning of the movie. And I guess he retired at the end uh, or disappeared or something at the end of Spectre. Right. At the end of the last one. Yeah. And so he's in retirement, vanished off the face of the world as far as his employers are concerned. And he is building a relationship with a woman, and which is usually not something that happens at the beginning of a Bond movie. It's mm-hmm. usually at the end. We were actually discussing before we started recording that Bond typically always gets the girl, but he never keeps the girl long term. So he always gets the girl at the end of the movie, but then the next movie starts and he doesn't have her. So in this movie, he got the girl at the end of Spectre and he still has her at the beginning of this movie. So it's a little twist on that. But then he loses her right away. And then this whole movie is kind of a... Or does he? (laughs) So it's interesting that, you know, you see Bond in a relationship where he is legacy building and... And then, of course, that goes all awry because nothing can go right in Bond's life, especially his emotional life. But we also see that M is building a legacy. He's trying to create a weapon that 
can be safely targeted to take out bad guys without collateral damage. That is a type of legacy that he's trying to build. We see that Madeline has had a child, which that, that is like the ultimate like building of a legacy is to pass on, you know, something mm-hmm. to another generation. Even Safin is building legacies. I mean, they're bad legacies, but that's he thinks that he is creating something that is going to make the world a better place, at least in his twisted mind. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is all about building legacies. And I was really kind of shocked about that because there is a lot scriptural about building legacies, though that word doesn't actually appear in the Bible. Mm. I did a quick search and there's a lot of talk about, you know, leaving things for the generations and, right. and and inheritances and that kind of stuff. But an actual legacy building is not really spoken of scripturally. But I think that our, that's partially because the real legacy of a believer is not something physical that we leave behind in this world. It is eternal. Our, our true legacy is the legacy that Christ left us on the cross. So we, we have an eternal legacy. And the best legacy that we can leave in the lives of others is the gospel and how we best portray Christ in our lives. And that, that's where we're building the best legacies. Yeah. Yeah, the legacy is not ours to leave. Right. It's, you know, the, the chief end of man <laughs> to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. And that's interesting because there's a, a quote of a quote in this movie at the very end because, at, spoiler, which we've already said, spoiler's not an issue. <laughs> James Bond dies at the end of this movie, or does he? Appears to. He appears to die at the end of this movie. And they have a eulogy for him at the end. Just the small group of people who loved and cared about him at MI6. They're having a little meeting and M quotes this quote. He says, the proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And it's interesting because it appears from, if you Google, you know, this quote, it seems to have generated quite a bit of discussion coming out mm-hmm. of the movie, you know, why he said this and whether it was a hint and, and uh, just looking it up myself, it was actually spoken by Jack London, the author of The Call of the Wild and White Fang and some of those other books. It was actually accredited to him as something he said not long before his death. But it was also quoted in one of Ian Fleming's James Bond books. And in that book was one where it was spoken at a eulogy in which James Bond was not actually dead. It was a rumor of his death, but it wasn't actually his death. And so that is why some people are saying that is like this important quote that is perhaps forecasting the fact that James Bond will return or didn't possibly really die. Because the issue is, is that James Bond has never died before in a James Bond movie. And so for him to die at the end of this movie is either something very out of place or not real. But we can get back to that. I'm struck by the idea that when at the end of Skyfall, M, who was played by Dame Judi Dench, mm-hmm. was killed. And at the beginning of Spectre, Bond meets a new M, played by Ralph Finnis. It's interesting that they replace everybody else without any difficulty. Yeah. But when 
James Bond is replaced by a different actor, he is the same character from movie to movie, regardless of actors. Right. He's still James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> not not someone else playing 007. He's James Bond. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which, this is going to be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an elephant in the room that we have to discuss, because there is another 007 in this movie, and she is a woman. And I know that there has been a lot of cultural talk about making famous male icons into women, and I think that this may have been, and I'm hoping this will be the only time (laughs) that a woman will portray 007, because that is... I, I think they did it just so that it could be they could say they did it without having to make a title movie with a woman as James Bond. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So they, they allowed yeah. it to happen without having to make it all about a woman being James Bond. And I actually appreciate that they made another double oh seven because they presume James Bond to be dead. Right. They I appreciate the <laughs> that they made the next 007, a, a woman. And I think that I would watch a movie with her as, you know, 007 in, in the lead. But when you have a character, you know, an established character like James Bond or Peter Parker, I think there are certain, I guess, lines that I wouldn't be comfortable with crossing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be comfortable with turning Peter Parker into a woman. I wouldn't be comfortable with making James Bond a woman because, you know, their gender is specific. so much of an element of who they are, far more, in fact, with James than with Parker right. than with Peter Parker. But at the same time, like Marvel just finished up the first season of What If on Disney Plus, and the whole premise was – what if you change this one little thing? What what happens? How does how does the world change? Well, actually, we did the Spider-Man multiverse movie, mm-hmm. and that had Gwen as a female Spider-Man. And I'd watch a movie with her, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, James Bond, they can't make him a woman, but they can... Give his socially woman. correct him. <laughs> make him less of a womanizer. <laughs> yeah, they can make him less of Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and to be honest, I wouldn't even mind if they made the next James Bond black. I mean, I don't have a problem with yeah. that either. I think it would be a little bit of a an attempt to maybe play to the woke crowd a little bit if they did, but at the same time, it wouldn't bug me or bother me because there are a lot of really – suave black Brits. So, <laughs> Who was the guy who played Heimdall in Thor? Oh, yeah. I can't remember his name all of a sudden. I was thinking of another guy, and I don't know his name, but I've seen him in a lot of stuff recently, and he's British, and he is a very fine-looking black man, and he would make a great James Bond. <laughs> but I can't remember what his name is. So, and I don't remember what I've seen him in, so it would, I'd have to look him up. But to me, the, it... It doesn't really matter as much as some people make it matter, but I definitely would have a problem with a female James Bond. And and I don't think the franchise even needs a female 007. I don't mind if they want to do a spinoff for a 008 or a 009 that's a woman, but I, to me, yeah. I feel like it would just be playing to 
the woke crowd trying to make <laughs> a point. And I think that that was why they had, you know, the female 007 in this movie. And, and that is a, yeah. a bit of a rabbit trail off of our discussion on legacies, but I did want to bring it up because it was, it, it was kind of like the elephant in the room in this movie. And I have seen a lot of people say they did not like her. And so, you know, it's worth, it's worth bringing up that discussion. Idris Elba, by the way, <laughs> is the, uh, the guy who played Heimdall and Chiwetel Ejo four from Serenity, the assassin from Serenity. Both of them would make great bonds. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll see a black bond next time around. I don't think that would be far from the truth, to be honest, because like I said, there are a lot of really fine looking black British actors yeah. that I think would. And you know, Bond really does need to be in this day and age, he needs to be an everyman. He needs to fit into the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, he needs to be somebody that that fits in and somebody that the viewers can associate with. Yeah. All right, so back off of our our little <laughs> bunny trail. Legacy. Oh, that's right. We were talking about legacies. We were talking about yes. legacies. And and to be honest, that is a bit of a legacy because we are talking about the legacy of James Bond and the franchise. So really that even though it was a bit of a bunny trail, it is part of the discussion of legacies because mm -hmm. there is a massive legacy of the James Bond character on our culture. And I think that this movie kind of plays on that. I mean, with its homages to the, the franchise and all of that, I think they're really, you know, talking about James Bond as a pop culture character and what he represents in the world. There, there were some comments and not enough to even really make it a theme to discuss, but there were some comments in here that, you know, talked about the changing global politics, you know, the Brits and the US. They've always been allies in the past, but they're not always on the same playing field anymore. And sharing intelligence has become difficult. They kind of made some comments to that. And I think that that was kind of that feel like this movie was was speaking to the changing culture and how James Bond is a legacy that has to change with the culture. And I think that that was part of maybe the innuendo of this movie is kind of like on the back burner. It's like, you know, this is the death of the pop culture white super spy. And James Bond will continue, but this might be the end of that particular legacy. And it would be interesting yeah. to see what, what goes forward. Uh, before recording while we were working on the show notes, the question came up, has James Bond ever died before? And there's there's never been an on-screen death of James Bond, and there still hasn't been one where, you know, <laughs> there's the body. Yeah. But I was looking up whether or not Bond has ever died and, and found this quote from Time Magazine, Bond is dead. Long live James Bond. In the franchise story, 58 years history, 007 has never actually died. Bond movies usually end with the successful destruction of the villain's lair and the camera panning away as the hero beds a Bond girl on a boat in space on a balcony, often with his would-be rescuers looking on or waiting in the wings. <laughs> and that really does speak to, you know, how these have always ended. Mm -hmm. And this end, the end of this movie is very, very different because there's no doubt, you know, in, in the other movies, there's no doubt that Bond lived. He's very much alive and, you know, romantically engaged <laughs> with a woman. But at the end of this movie, any reasonable assumption would be 
that Bond is in a million pieces in disputed waters between China and Russia. Yeah. And you even see like Madeline, you know, telling her daughter about this man named James Bond. You know, let me tell you a story mm-hmm. about James Bond. Oh, you know, he has the health monitor and they show the health monitor goes dead too. Right. Yeah. So they've made it look like James Bond really is dead. So we'll see where it goes. But that's, to me, I, I almost feel like that's what they're doing. It's like, this is the end of an era, not necessarily end of James Bond, but the end of a, a certain portrayal of James Bond. And we'll see something vastly different when the new James Bond yeah. returns. But from a biblical standpoint, as I've already mentioned, legacy building is completely different from a Christian point of view. And I just want to read a few verses about that. One of my favorite passages in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 6, 20 through 21 is in the kind of the core of that. And it, and this is, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And that is kind of speaking to the whole idea of legacy building as in building treasures and wealth and whatever, and that our wealth is not in physical things, but in heaven. And another verse I found was Second uh, Timothy 2.2, and this is what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that is leaving the legacy of the word, where you mm-hmm. build and disciple other believers to continue to spread the gospel. And then First Peter 4.10, it says, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. And that is speaking to the gifts that the talents that God gives us. That, well, that was the whole parable of the talents is, you know, is that, yeah. that you use your talents, you don't hoard them. And that is legacy building. When, when you use your talents for God, then you are building legacies with those talents. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Proverbs thirteen twenty two: a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. And that nice give and take of Proverbs where it, it's almost like we were discussing in the last movie, a yin and yang. It's like the companion, <laughs> companion things that go to... Nice tie back. Yeah. So this is where it's talking about, you know, that you build a legacy for your children, but those who are sinful build the kind of legacies that will backfire on them in the end and that someone else will end up living off of those legacies because of their, their sin sin. And then the last one that I have here is Psalms 78, four, we will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and the wondrous works he has performed. And that is just a reminder as, and this is an Old Testament reminder that we should not be silent about the goodness of God in our lives, that this is, this is something that we should speak of and impart to the, into the next generation so that they will know. It's basically giving our testimony. We should be willing to give our testimony to the, to those around us on a, on the drop of a hat. We should just always have it on the tip of our tongue to speak of what God is doing in our lives. Mm hmm. So I guess that's where we are as a Christians to, to look at legacy building, that it's not something that, that we're necessarily doing for our own namesake. Because I, you know, I feel like the world is, in fact, there's a line in this movie that says, life is all about leaving something behind. And, and then there was another line in the movie about, if you've got nothing left to give, you're irrelevant. 
Yeah. So those two lines kind of made this point that the legacies you build are what make you who you are. And if you're not building legacies, if you're not leaving something, you're not giving something, not contributing something, you're not worth anything. And I think that that is perhaps, well, I don't think it that is definitely a secular way of looking at it, because we believe that all life has value. Whether they're, you're contributing something or not, you're made in the image of God. But God does want us to glorify him in our lives, to produce other Christians, to reproduce the kingdom. But that isn't what makes us valuable. Yeah. It comes down to, uh, like so many other things, idolatry. Right. What is important to you? If it's not God's will, then you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, moving along, the next thing we wanted to talk about was the Heracles weapon. It's kind of an interesting to talk about it because it's not really a theme through the movie, but it's definitely an object of the movie. It's like an element of the movie that's important because, you know, we, we talk about weapons of mass destruction. They've become kind of a a byword now. I mean, ever since, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm thinking back, it's like that's the first Gulf the War. Gulf War, yeah. Yeah. It's been something that has been like common pop culture topic of discussion for a very long time. And in this movie, Heracles was not built or was not imagined, was not made to be a weapon of mass destruction. But the people who made it were not necessarily thinking about it properly because they were thinking that they were building a weapon that could be targeted and and that it would be clean because there would be no collateral damage. You could wipe out specific targets without having to worry about, you know, the people around those targets being hit, which right now, you know, you have these targeted missiles. And when a missile hits a building, there's going to be collateral damage, whether or not you were aiming it at one person or all the people in the building. So it's really hard to target attacks right now. And so they were thinking, you know, make it a genetic marker where, you know, these these nanobites would kill a specific genetic marker, but anybody else they infected, they wouldn't affect. They would just make them carriers. And they weren't thinking how that could be used in the wrong hands. And you were saying how much you were bugged by the whole idea that they couldn't get rid of the nanobites once they were infected in a person. But the thing that really bugged me the most about this weapon was the fact that it was developed at all. And I know, (laughs) I know that there are people in the world who think that, you know, they can do biological warfare in a proper way, but anybody who considers themselves a good guy and develops some kind of biological weapon like this, there, you're not a good guy because you should be thinking from day one before you, when the idea pops into your head, your second thought should be, how could somebody misuse this? Because if you're not building in the fail safes that would prevent this from being misused, yeah, then it shouldn't be yeah. produced. You should not take it past a light bulb above your head. It should never go beyond that. <laughs> it really is a. It's like a Pandora's box or a, a genie. You know, being let out of the bottle. Yeah. Once you have the idea, um, <laughs> there's no getting it back in the bottle or getting it back in the box. Right. Because, I mean, you look at China in one of my continuing education classes, we were talking about intellectual property theft. China has entire industries devoted to reverse engineering companies' products. Mm-hmm. You know that if they're willing to do that with... American-made Blu-ray players, 
they're going to do it with American-made vaccines and German-made automobiles. Once knowledge is out there, there's no getting it back. Right. And so that whole idea... And, and, you know, and they take him to task. I mean, that's the first thing Bond does when he's talking to him about this is like, did you not think about what would happen if your weapon grew legs and ran away? <laughs> so, I mean, this was totally blind thinking on the part of the, if the British government was behind it or was a private project on, you know, for MI6 or M or I don't know who, you know, dream mm-hmm. this thing up, but they, their intentions were supposedly good, but they were not farsighted enough to see how it could be misused. And that was their fault entirely. I mean, if Bond hadn't been able to stop Cephine at the end of this movie and he had gone ahead and factory farmed out enough of this, uh, these nanobites to basically wipe out any target he wanted from families to entire ethnicities. Yeah. That And it was unstoppable. There was no way to stop it. No way, you know, they had no off button for this thing. And mm-hmm. like you said, it's Pandora's box. I mean, what were they thinking? And thankfully, it was fictional, but you have it yeah. makes you wonder for sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder sometimes what's going on in some of these government labs. <laughs> I don't know who was the worst villain in this one. Was it the one who was ignorant enough to think that this weapon will never get out or the one who was so completely lacking in a moral compass that he (laughs) helped it get out, you know? But did you catch that? And and I I think I read this right from the movie. M was involved with the Russian scientist sneaking the weapon out under Spectre's help. He actually set it up so that Spectre would would take this this out of the lab so that it could kill all of Spectre. I, I thought the help he had was from Safin, not from M. Oh, I don't know. I felt like it was M, but I could have gotten I taken walked away with the wrong. <laughs> it's M. M wanted stole the Russian scientist from somewhere else. Okay. I don't remember where he snuck him out of, but I'm pretty sure Safin and that rogue CIA agent Hardy, I think his name was, I think they were both working for Safin, for uh, Lucifer Safin, the bad, the big baddie. Right. Huh. Yeah. But regardless of the fact, anybody who would work on such a project has no morals. <laughs> yeah. You know, the the whole setup for that just, that really bugged me, that whole concept. And it does make me worry about what goes on in, in government labs because, you know, yeah. whether wherever you stand on the current pandemic that we're suffering under, there is a lot of evidence showing that it originated at least partially from a lab where they were working on a virus. And whether it mm-hmm. escaped or was it intentionally created and intentionally set loose, just pick your conspiracy. But the point is, that it probably did come from a lab. And so it does make you wonder what people are working on in these government Mm. labs. And so, yeah, this movie does kind of speak to mass hysteria in that situation. (laughs) Since so many of us are working from home, 
I get to actually sit down and watch TV while I'm eating lunch. Mm-hmm. One of the very few times that I actually get to sit and watch a program. And I recently rewatched the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine over the last nine months or something like that. And it occurred to me that one of the ways that Star Trek made aliens alien was to make them not abide by, you know, natural law, which is based in Romans 2, 14 through 16. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Or their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. And it's the idea that there is a absolute moral law that exists. And my point is, is that when they want to make a really bad villain, the first thing they do is they take away, they make this villain... Lacking a moral compass? Yeah, they make it so that you can't really associate with the villain because they're lacking something that every person should have by default. And they did that with the Russian scientist. He is completely lacking in common sense, among many things. (laughs) But he uses the virus to kill hundreds of people, the nanovirus or whatever Heracles Uh to kill hundreds of people. Now, granted, they were all very bad people, but he doesn't care. He just was using it to see his work get used. In fact, it was interesting because he actually wanted Bond to be, he's like, I saved your life, you know, because it was. Yeah, to be grateful. Yeah, he wanted Bond (laughs) to be grateful. Yeah. So I find it interesting how the way they make villains is to break what we should see as God's influence in humanity to make them more alien. Yeah. And you know that that's kind of a Romans one attack because we know that every person has some knowledge of God and the ones who Mm -hmm. are truly evil in the world are who God has, you know, basically turned them over to their sin and they've rejected God. So they, they don't have that moral compass anymore. They don't care. And, I will say, speak to this because I know a lot of atheists say that, you know, they can be good people and not believe in God. And that's true. You can be a good person as we view good people morally in culture. Right. You can save lives. You can be a hero. You can, you know, do good things and not believe in God. But it's God's law written on your heart that allows you to do that. Whether you acknowledge God or not. It is the image of God in your heart that allows you to be a good person. And when you completely spurn God, and I think that's where atheists trod the line is, and why I see them as being a lot of them, the militant ones of being very hateful and nasty people to be around because they have rejected God to the point that God has rejected them. And they are living that out in the way they behave in culture and in interpersonal relationships and what have you. And it is their fault because they've rejected God. Yeah. And I think that that is what creates villains because when you no longer have 
that position of authority in your life, someone to answer to, and you lose that moral compass. And the world has to borrow from a Christian mm. worldview in order to have any kind of exactly. moral compass. Yeah. Yeah. The villain, Lucifer Safin, wants to use this weapon to do essentially a reset on the world. At, at one point, they show the traditional map of the effect as it balloons out from one geographic area and eventually covers the whole globe. It seems like he is intending to wipe out the majority of the, the population. They don't specify in the movie what population he's targeting. They imply that he could be targeting ethnicities. They imply that he could be targeting specific genetic markers, but they don't actually say what he's doing. And he compares himself to Bond in a couple of different places, but that comparison falls short because James Bond with his license to kill any of the double O members of MI6, either fictionally or in reality, they are working under the auspices and the authority of an established government. And that government has biblical authority to take life. And regardless of where you stand on capital punishment or uh, anything like that, the fact of the matter is that the Bible tells us in Romans 13, 4, for it's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So when Bond killed, and he never commits mass murder, but that's beside the point. When Bond killed, he was killing in the name of a government. When Savin killed, even though he thought he was doing something for the good of humanity, he was still doing it with no authority. And that's really the difference between the destruction that he was trying to cause and the death that Bond caused in, you know, his lifetime or even when the United States dropped the atomic bombs. So that kind of comparison is frequently used between the villain and the questionably good guy. Mm -hmm. We're just the same, Mr. Bond. Well, no, you're not, because Bond has authority and you don't. Right. You would hope anyway, if that if you were an agent of a government, and, and I think that this is true of any free government anyway, that you have the right to say no. If you're yes. being targeted at somebody that you don't think should die, you do have the right to not use your authority to kill. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In the United States military, the Uniform Code of Military Justice requires you to refuse unlawful orders. All right. So before we shift away from, you know, in this podcast, I do want to talk about the title of the movie. It is looking back through the 27 James Bond movies of the way they <laughs> always talk about, you know, Tomorrow Never Dies and all the different titles that have die or you only live twice or mortality live and let die. <laughs> yeah. They all talk about, you know, view to a kill license to kill die another day. Uh, so there's a lot of die stuff in, I don't, and I don't know who chooses titles, whether they're based on the books all the time or, 
you know, how they choose a title. But in this particular movie, I really felt like they played to the title of the movie. There were several lines in the movie that seemed to really tie into the the title. One of them was the 007 who intercepts James Bond in his retirement. Uh, She tells him Hmm. that he appears to be a person who only has time to kill and nothing to live for. And then in another part, there there was a, a scene where it was actually the leader of Spectre tells James Bond, he says, I didn't need to kill you. I'd already broken you. I wanted to give you an empty world like the one you gave me. Uh, Blowfield. Yeah, Blowfield. And then there was a couple times in the movie, at the beginning and at the end, where having all the time in the world was discussed. So Mm -hmm. there was a line that says, we have all the time in the world. This was when he was with his love interest at the beginning of the movie. And then when he realizes that he's going to die at the end of the movie, she says, we just need more time, you know, to be together. And he replies, you have all the time in the world. So time and death and what to live for are themes that kind of interweave throughout the whole movie, kind of tying into that title. And I just wanted to, you know, discuss that just briefly from a Christian worldview, because as Christians, we live really on borrowed time. Time is a concept of that is in the human realm outside of eternity. So God doesn't exist in time. He exists outside of time. And when we leave this mortal coil, as uh, mm. as uh, Shakespeare called it, we shuffle off this mortal coil into eternity and we leave time behind. And so time and death together are very interesting concepts from a Christian worldview. And so just a few verses that tie into that. There, well, there's several throughout the Bible, and especially through the New Testament, but what drew me was an entire passage in the book of Philippians. So I'm going to read that here uh, to kind of wrap up our discussion. It's Philippians 1, 20 through 27. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel." So that is our position, and it's as it was Paul's position, that to die is to gain eternity with Christ. And that should be something that we look forward to. And instead of this this whole concept of holding on to life and making use of your time, and the eulogy, the proper function of man is to live, not to exist, to not waste days trying to prolong them, but to use your time. That kind of fits into this. It's like, we're not trying to stay alive. We're just trying to live for the Lord because knowing that when he calls us home, we are leaving this horrible existence for something better, but not to lengthen that, not to hasten it. It's, it's all just in the, in God's timing. So 
I think that that is a good way to wrap up our discussion, but I did want to talk briefly about some comments that were left on our Discord chat, and we do mm-hmm. in- encourage you all to come join us in Discord. It's at areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. We'll give you the invitation to join our server. I know it's off the beaten path for some people to to come and join us in Discord, and we, but we'd really love to have you there. It is a more private place to discuss than Facebook, where you're continuously distracted by all of the negative and argumentative environment and the ads and all the other things that mm. go on in Facebook. When you come to Discord, it is just Discord, and it is just the community that you join, and it's less... Distracting, I guess, is the best way to put it. <laughs> Less toxic. Less toxic, yeah. So one of our viewers did go and see the movie and kind of chime in on what was going on. And David, interestingly enough, tied in Daniel 8. I thought this was really interesting. Yeah. He talked about Spectre as the two-horned ram destroyed by the one-horned goat, Saphine, and you know, tying in end times, you know, we really don't talk about end times much in, in this podcast and our discussions typically stay with more Christian living than end times. But I've, I found that to be a really interesting tie in. He also like the scene where 007 is just a number and that it, mm-hmm. he said in that it is good not to try to hold ministries as yours, but as God's and be willing to hand off to the next generation. That's a good point. As we are all under his majesty's service. I really appreciated that. He did point out, obviously, that humanism permeates the movie. That happens with just about every movie out of Hollywood. It would be really hard for it not to. And he was right. This one doesn't have much by way of an agenda, per se. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really push anything. It's much more entertainment-based. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't get a movie out of Hollywood now without – Humanism, yeah, <laughs> all the way through it. Yeah, and and, and I mean the the fact that Safin's first name is is a derivative of Lucifer, a Russian derivative mm-hmm. of, of Lucifer is is intriguing to me. And even Safina sounds a little bit like Satan. So you know that that they were able to build a character who was in his way so evil. I mean, there yeah. there was nothing redeeming about Safin. Even him saving Madeline's life as a child. It was a selfish reason. So, mm-hmm. and they're building their villains more that way, which, as I said at the beginning, I kind of appreciate because I like the black and white. I like my villains to be bad, somebody that I feel justified in hating. <laughs> Movies that try and, and build the villains as more shades of gray, you know, where they're the hero of their own story. And if you just looked at it from their perspective, then you could kind of understand where they're coming from. I don't understand where Safin's coming from and I don't want to. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that he was able to relate that to Daniel 8 vision of the future. I thought that that was really spectacular application of a Christian worldview there. Way to go, David. (laughs) Yay. Yay. So you can join our Facebook community. You can get to that by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. Tim and I both would rather prefer that you come and join us in our Discord community, which you can again, once you can, are you just watching.com slash Discord. The other ways that you can get in touch with us, 
Comment on the show notes, which for this episode will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 121. You can call us at 513-818-2959 to leave a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And we do ask that if you are listening to us on a regular basis and want to subscribe to us, that you do so in wherever you get your podcasts. We are available on all of the big uh, podcast distributors now. It used to only be Apple Podcasts, but now it's Amazon and mm-hmm. uh, Google. <laughs> it's like you can go in lots of places and you should be able to find us on all of them. So if you can't find us where you're getting your podcast, please contact us and let us know and we'll make sure that we join whatever feed that is so that you can get us there. We do want to thank our supporters. That's Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous monthly support. You can also support us by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching or donating at paypal.com slash paypalme slash ayjw. And I think that pretty much wraps it up. We are definitely as <laughs> unless the world ends in the Been next waiting. week or two, <laughs> we will definitely be doing our November episode on the, the new remake of Dune. And I am inordinately excited <laughs> about this movie coming out. <laughs> and so we will be discussing that one. And I believe that we will probably hit Marvel again for December. Depending on which one that is, will probably depend on timing. But anyway, believe that will be on our agenda for the remainder of the years. And we do hope to see more of our listeners joining us online when we record on Discord. So if you would like to know more about that, join our Facebook group or our Discord group and come and see the schedule so that you know when we're recording and join us live can hear all our ums that we cut out (laughs) in the final (laughs) edit (laughs) thank you so much for listening i'm e franklin i'm tim martin and don't just watch the christian podcast community is a cohesive group of like-minded christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology church history christian living evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.